right, gentlemen, if we could go ahead and get settled in, we'll go ahead and let Matt take care of uh, the last part of the program here today. Appreciate everybody staying. Hope everyone enjoyed lunch. If you didn't get enough to eat, then that's on you. <laughs> so, anything, Eddie? No? Okay. Uh, we're going to be passing out a uh, uh, pamphlet. I don't see Matt. Where's Matt at? Apparently he's delaying, so uh, we're going to pass out a form for everybody to have, and as soon as Matt gets back in here, he'll start his presentation. Okay, now it helps for me to just stand up and get a little blood circulating. I know I was sitting back here on that back pew that uh, lunch is settling in, and I actually ate three desserts, so I was about to go into a sugar coma, but um, it was so good. I mean, the desserts were just hard to beat this morning. I really appreciate everyone that helped make that lunch possible. Um, I wanted to mention the scriptures uh, for the uh, tape recording um, because uh, a couple people mentioned that I had talked about them but didn't really uh, cite them. And the three that I think that it's important that we start teaching the principles of the fact that it's not just a sin to commit a sin, it's a sin to help people commit a sin. Okay, and, and these are just three examples of passages that I would recommend that you uh, uh, spend some time uh, impl implicating. Um, let's see. The first one is, where'd it go? Lost my buttons here. Okay, the first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 and 14. And that verse, those verses say, one, verse 3 says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And so it's the principle of being a stumbling block to people. That even if you're not struggling with a sin, if they are and you then, um, you know, do things that would encourage him to commit that sin, even if you yourself don't engage in that sin, I think it's sin. Uh, I would uh, point you to um, 1 Corinthians uh, 14 as, w as well. Then the second verse, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. A lot of people use that to refer to mixed marriages between Christians and non-Christians. But in fact, if you look at the context, it's much broader than that. It's the idea of partnering with lawlessness or having fellowship with darkness, as the remainder of that verse says. And so I think it's very important that we, uh, as children of the light, um, not partner with or have fellowship with people that are participating in darkness. And then the third, uh, the second set of scriptures is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, which says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So there's both a negative and an affirmative duty. And one is to not participate in that activity, but the other one is to actually point out that it's wrong 
and expose it. And I think that's important to remember. And then the uh, third final scripture is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 which says very simply abstain from every form or some, some translations say every appearance of evil. And I think that's a, a very broad principle. It's hard to live up to. Uh, but so much of our society is evil. And uh, if we aren't very conscientious, uh, we can unwittingly sometimes uh, encourage other people to engage in sin. Um, by the movies we watch, by the clothes that we wear, by the things that we'll post on our Facebook page, um, by the things that we will endorse and talk about as funny or fun or cool to watch. And, and unwittingly, um, we are not abstaining, but we in fact are approving of those who do such, do such things, which is sin according to Romans 1 and 2. So, that said, I always wanted to close that loop on that, that issue and then um, begin this new session. Now, this new session is very legal, pr practical, and you've got a couple of documents in front of you. And the way I've organized it is I've organized it around 12 questions. And you're going to be encouraged just to document your answers, uh, yes or no, and we'll be scoring up points. You get one point uh, for the right answer and no points for the wrong answer. Um, and be as honest as you can, and at the end of the, uh, end of the class, we'll hopefully have a little score on how healthy legally your, your uh, church is. Now, you've got a form that we'll talk about in a second that you were given before lunch, and that was called the Church Facility Use Audit. And this was uh, 12 other questions that were specifically to um, uh, the kinds of questions that I ask when churches ask me, can I uh, send them or help them draft a facility use policy? This, this is the form that I send them, and then they fill it out, and it helps me guide the way I would draft the policy for them. Um, I was... Uh, I started out as a lawyer drafting policies for employers all over the state of Alabama. I drafted probably about over 200, 250 employee handbooks um, for, for major employers throughout the state of Alabama back in the uh, mid-1990s. And um, one of the things that I've always uh, believed, and I think Joe even pointed this out, is the only thing worse than having a policy is having a policy you don't follow. And so you can't follow it if you don't understand it. So you really have to get involved in the drafting and the finalizing of your policies and make sure you understand every sentence. Otherwise, don't adopt it uh, because you can't follow it. Now, we'll get to that specifically, but let's start with a couple of easy questions concerning corporate governance. Question number one, and this is something you can score at the top of the page that you have uh, uh, you've got some scrap paper. Question number one, is your organization, is your church incorporated? And I'd like to see a show of hands on this one. Raise your hand if you are incorporated. So maybe half of us, maybe not. Uh, that's an interesting. We'll come to that one in just a second. So give yourself a point if you said yes, no points if you said no. Question number two, do you know where your bylaws are? And what, or do you even know what bylaws are? But do you know where your bylaws are, literally? Can you go get your hands on a copy and share it, share it with me? And what, uh, what they say specifically about an annual meeting. How many of you all know that you, if you're incorporated, how many of you conduct an annual meeting every year? Fewer hands came up. That's called a corporate formality. And the fact that you're incorporated is supposed to limit your liability um, so that the only thing that if, they, if your church is sued for negligence that's not your own, 
uh, for the negligence of somebody else in, in the church, uh, they can't sue you and go after your assets if you're incorporated. Just because you're an elder or just because you're a member in the church, if you yourself weren't guilty of doing the wrongdoing. The only catch with that is if you don't maintain your corporate formalities, such as having an annual meeting and keeping minutes for that meeting and documenting it. In which case, if you don't maintain your corporate formalities, and there's, you have to file an annual report with the state every, every year, uh, if you don't maintain those basic corporate formalities, what happens is that a plaintiff's lawyer can pierce the corporate veil. And even though you're incorporated, can still go after the personal assets of all the elders and members. Um, so that's something that you want to make sure you, you follow. Uh, number three, do you have a risk management policy or guidelines? And, and you know, something that sort of, you know, strategically thinks about risks in your, and I thought Joe did a great job talking about the different kinds of insurance that you can use to transfer risk. Uh, but you need to sort of strategically think about what are the dangers of your particular ministry. If you have other uh, unique operations like a daycare or a Mother's Day Out or a nursery or uh, you have foster children, a uh, children's home worshiping with you, if you have a, a, a Christian camp, um, or you know that kind, all those additional types of programs. If you have a very active youth group that does a lot of overnight traveling, then then you're going to have additional risks that you need to think through ahead of time, and you need to have sort of a strategic plan to do that. Number four, do you have a facility use policy? And if you don't, uh, that's what we've uh, brought and provided for you today as a model um, policy, and we'll go through that together. And then lastly, uh, do you have bylaws? Uh, that's sort of the same question as number two now that I look at it. But um, the question number two was really assuming you had them, can you put your hands on them and are you following them? Question number five is do you have them at all? All right, let's, uh, let's break down a couple of those. The first one, those of you that said that you do not have, you have not incorporated. Let me suggest to you that you do that. Um, there's very little legal reason that I can think of that you wouldn't want to do that. And it would help you uh, in several fronts. Now, the, the, what I've set out for you on this slide are the ten basic steps to incorporating. The first thing that you do, if you're not incorporated, then you are an unincorporated association. Whether you realize it or not, that's what you are. And you're an unincorporated association, and there are legal rules that govern unincorporated associations. And, and just like... So just like there are rules that govern incorporated organizations, entities. And so you're not escaping the law, you're just working under a different kind of law. And, it's a, and the set of rules for unincorporated associations is not good. For example, the rule is for an unincorporated association is that you are personally liable for what all of your associates do. I, you know, if I didn't know they were going to do it, if I couldn't control them, if I didn't agree with them, I don't want no part of it, right? But as an incorporated association, legally you will be on the hook for what they do. And so that's an example of why you want to move to an incorporated status. So first thing you would do if you wanted to do that is you would have a meeting of the church. Uh, we would generally call those in our church uh, uh organization, we normally, if we don't have elders, we normally have a men's business meeting because we believe in male spiritual leadership. And so you would either have a general meeting of the members or the, the men of the congregation, and then they would consent 
to changing this from an unincorporated association to an, uh, to an incorporated religious organization. And if they, will, if they give you that consent, uh, and, and if you have elders, they would basically authorize the elders to do that, or more properly, like I did for a church last week uh, in East Tennessee, is we drafted up a resolution that said that the general membership was ratifying the elders' decision to incorporate. Because that then respects the authority of the elders, but legally gets everybody's consent that's a member of the church um, for that point in time, so that going forward, there's no question about the legality of the incorporation. All right. So once you've gotten the consent to let the elders or the men of the church incorporate, the next step is for the elders or the men of the church to appoint an incorporator. This person is just the person that fills out and does the paperwork. He doesn't have any authority beyond getting them incorporated, but he does have the authority to incorporate. And the, second, the next step is uh, he or she, she, if it's a secretary that you want to designate or uh, that's going to be here from, from 9 to 5, or you want to designate the elders, or in Tennessee and Alabama, you can designate the church itself as the registered agent for the church. What does that mean? That just means who do they send the mail to if they want to sue you? Who do they send a copy of the complaint to? And make sure it doesn't get lost in the, in the, in the trash, thrown out with the, with the junk mail. Okay, so it needs to be somebody you send it to responsibly. So you can just designate the church as your registered agent, and then that means the mail will come to the church, and no matter who opens the mail... You've been put on notice of the lawsuit, and if you fail to answer it in time because it got thrown away, then you're going to be in default, okay? You risk a default judgment against you. Um, but you can specify that as a person or as the church itself, uh, but you need to legally have to designate a registered agent if you're going to be in a corporation. Number four is then you have somebody prepare a very simple one- or two-page document called the Articles of Incorporation, and that's what you then file with the state. In the old days, it was called a charter. Uh, but um, those uh, articles are filed with the Secretary of State here in Alabama. And you do that simply electronically by going down to the local courthouse to the probate judge's office. That clerk has a little scanner. And you pay your fee, 100 bucks or whatever it is, and they will literally scan that one- or two-page document into the system. It's instantly uploaded to the Secretary of State, and now you are incorporated. It's that simple. It's so a one or two page form you can find for free on the, uh, the Alabama website for the state of Secretary of State, uh, or you can find one very cheaply as part of a whole package including bylaws and whatnot on a site like LegalZoom.com. Now, once you've filed those articles with the state, you have your first meeting. And in that first meeting, you make clear what the organization of that uh, uh, corporation looks like. And number one, you want to respect the authority of the elders. You want to make sure that your elders are responsible and have the oversight of this congregation. And that means you don't have a separate body of directors or trustees separate from the elders. In fact, they should be one and the same. And the elder just has to wear his trustee hat when he's talking legal business or selling the property or whatnot. And you make sure that when your elder steps down, they are removed as a director. 
or when an elder is added, that they're automatically added as a director. You build that into your legal doc, your corporate documents. Many churches have failed to do that, and they end up not realizing it, but they'll have three men that are no longer qualified as elders and maybe even have a riff with the eldership that actually own all the property and can decide when to sell it and who to sell it to. And that could result in a split in the church and be very harmful. So I encourage you to make sure that your elders serve as the directors. And in that first meeting, they would be designated as the, uh, you would designate elders for legal purposes only uh, to serve as the officers. Because as a legal entity, you do have to have a president and a uh, secretary or treasurer. And usually the secretary treasurer is the same person. So you can have two or three of the elders designated as, a, as officers. So you genuine, genuinely need an eldership of at least three men in order to be able to effectively incorporate. If you're operating as a small church with only two elders, it's not healthy because they, they don't know how a way to split their ties. Uh, but uh, more importantly, it's more difficult for you to switch to an incorporated status. Okay? All right. Um, so then after you've done that, then number, uh, step number seven is you just convey all the property to the new corporation, transfer with a quick, quick claim deed all the property over to the, to the corporation so that it's um, got some assets, and then that'll be the only thing anybody could ever sue over. And you let your insurance company know, the bank know, that sort of thing, that you've been incorporated, and then you maintain your corporate formalities, such as filing the annual report with the Secretary of State and maintain uh, annual meetings and minutes and that sort of thing. Any questions about incorporating? It's sort of a laborious process, uh, but it's not that difficult. And it doesn't cost that much. All right. Now, the, the one, more, one more comment about corporate governance, and that is uh, minute meetings, meeting minutes. Many churches make the mistake of not keeping minutes, which, as I've told you already, is, is a corporate formality that could result, if you don't do it, in somebody being able to pierce the corporate veil. So here's what I mean by keeping minutes. I don't expect you to do a transcription word for word of everything that was said. In fact, I don't recommend it. Because a lot of times we speak sort of casually in a meeting with friends and elders that we've been with for a long time. Instead, just document the general gist of the discussion, you know, the topic that you discussed, and include the details as far as a decision. If you specified, yes, we authorize them, will then specify who, when, what, how much, you know, really specifically on the actual decision. But don't get into, and this guy didn't want to hire him because he didn't like the way he's wearing his tie, and this guy didn't like, you know, don't get into all the discussion in your, note, in your notes. That can open up a can of worms. So topics of discussion, details of the decisions. That makes sense. Any questions about minutes? All right, uh, one other topic in the corporate governance context is risk management. Here's the basic risk strategy that I recommend. Number one, assess the risk. Take a look at all the things, all the programs, all the ministries you got going. You know, if you let the teenagers go overseas to Nicaragua every year as part of a mission trip, there's some risks that you need to be thinking about, okay? It's not just, you know, a good opportunity for them to learn how to spread the gospel. Uh, and so you've got to think about the risks, which ones can be avoided, which ones can be reduced, transferred, or assumed. That's your basic choices. And then figure out a way to mitigate that risk with one of those ways. And one of the most common ways is insurance. And Joe did a great job of talking about the different kinds of insurance, so I won't belabor this point. But the same ones that he mentioned I uh, have listed here, CGL insurance, 
Um, generally, a million dollars, two million dollar aggregate policy is a minimum for an average size church of Christ. Uh, Joe, would you agree with that or would you bump it up even more right now? But million dollars per incident, two million dollars aggregate is probably a good safe level. Uh, I was uh, working with a church, consulting with a church uh, a couple weeks ago, and they only had, you know, they only had about a third of what they needed if their house, if their church was burned down, and they uh, only had about two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars general liability insurance, and it was just too low for that size congregation. They just hadn't looked at it in fifteen years. So you may want to check your amounts and make sure they're appropriate. And then uh, D&O insurance, I asked Joe a good question I had um, in between, uh, after his talk about whether or not D&O insurance would apply if you didn't have directors and officers, i.e. you weren't incorporated and you hadn't designated the elders to be directors and officers. And he said, yes, if you have a specific endorsement that recognizes the elders as, as positions of authority that have to make those same kind of general level, general level decisions. So if you aren't incorporated, but you do want to have some protection for making those decisions that could arguably be negligent down the road, uh, and you don't want to be personally on the hook for it, you want some protection in making those decisions on behalf of the congregation, then get, a, get DNO insurance and just have a specific endorsement for elders. And then the last one is ELP insurance, or EPL insurance, uh, Employment Practices Liability Insurance. That uh, is to address some of the concerns that I mentioned in the first session uh, regarding claims under Title VII uh, that you are either a place of public accommodation and therefore uh, can't discriminate, or you are an employer of, depending on which type of claim, it can be as little as 10 or 11, but generally it's about 15 or more employees um, to be covered by the core of Title VII. Uh, and it can go up for age discrimination claims, you've got to have 15 employees. For the FMLA, you've got to have 50 employees. But, you know, if, once you got over 10 or 11, you start looking at it more closely, and 15, you're going to be covered by most of these uh, protections. Uh, and, and so you need to look at, if you've got that big a staff, I would strongly encourage you to buy uh, EPL insurance. It's not that, relatively, it's not that cost, uh, costly, given the fact of cost of defense for those cases is going to be tens of thousands. Now, uh, let me ask you this question uh, before we move off this corporate governance topic, and that is uh, the next, the, the, the biggest question for me is are you doing things in your facilities that are not religious, um, that do not have a direct relationship or component uh, of, uh, of that would, re would reflect a religious nature or ministry? For example, do you allow uh, exercise groups to use your fellowship hall during the week or Boy Scout and Girl Scout meetings and activities? Do you allow the local Dixie uh, youth baseball um, to practice in your, in your yards? Uh, do, do the election boards ask to use your church building for, as a voting precinct? Um, do you have AA meetings uh, throughout the week um, uh, that are not sponsored directly by the church, but they just start, you allow them to use your building? Um, is the building designated as an emergency shelter for the community? Do, uh, do, do the homeowners near your church building um, ask to hold their homeowner association meetings uh, in your building uh, and other civic type group meetings? All of those things are good works in the sense that they do, I think, build goodwill and improve the reputation of your church and help people know where the church is so that when you invite them to church, they can find it. Uh, and all that's great. 
But from a legal perspective, all of those activities are in the wrong column. What do I mean by that? A court of law will decide whether once these uh, general discrimination laws uh, against uh, discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or any other basis um, get in place on the federal, state, or local level, then the courts will be deciding which, which uh, um, public businesses are covered by and which ones aren't. And the decision will turn on whether you're a place of public accommodation or not. For gifty employers, some you'll never be big enough to be an employer. You won't have 15 or more employees. You can still be covered under Title I of, uh, of the Civil Rights Act if you're a place of public accommodation. And, and, and so there's, the judge is going to be drawing a ledger. And on one side, he's going to be listing all the factors that make you look like just a church. And the other side is going to be making another list of all the factors that make you look like a place of public accommodation, more like a hotel that's that's renting its 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 rooms out for conference space uh, to conduct a workshop like this, or more like um, a, a, a restaurant or a place that provides public services and that's generally open to the public. And the more you look like this column, if you have too many things in this column, then they're going to say that hey, you let the Boy Scouts use this facility, you let the Girl Scouts, you let the baseball players, you let everybody except the gays. You're not a, you, none of that stuff had anything to do with your at practicing your religion. This was a place of public accommodation, and now you're just discriminating on the basis of homosexuality because you're a homophobe. And they will, they will then find you liable. And so it's very important that you be very uh, careful to make sure that your, your church is characterized as a religious uh, entity and engaging in religious activity only. And, you know, many churches have asked me uh, about some things that they really feel strongly about. And, and I say, look, you can add a couple of things to the other side, like the, the, one of the main ones right now is being a voting precinct. It doesn't look a lot like, you know, allowing people to use your fellowship hall to have a party for non-religious purposes. So it doesn't look like the kind of thing that, that, that a lesbian couple might want to use your building for. Voting is not, is sort of a thing unto itself. So maybe it's okay, but you need to know it's in the wrong column. It's, it's setting a precedent, but it may not be enough to overwhelm the fact that you are a religious entity, but it is in the wrong column. So be very circumspect about how much you allow in that other column. So the two that I've said, well, if you want to do them, you're probably okay, but you know, I can't guarantee it, is voting precinct and uh, designated emergency shelter. But the other things, I really think you need to avoid them if they have no religious, overt religious or ministry purpose, or if you can't make them have an overt religious purpose. For example, the AA meetings, you can have AA meetings if they will build the scripture into that program and make it part of uh, your religious ministry. Right? You could turn almost anything into an, a great opportunity for ministry. You know, if you're going to have the Dixie youth uh, use your field for practice, have Connor meet them out there on the ball field every, every afternoon when they start their practice for a word of prayer and an encouraging word from God's Word, or something like that, then suddenly you've taken what is a secular activity and turned it into a ministry. Does that make sense? So if you can't turn it into a ministry, or it isn't inherently a ministry, then I recommend not doing it for fear that you're going to make your church a place of public accommodation and subject to the general non-discrimination laws. So, that said, let's take a look at drafting a facility use policy. 
If you had a chance to fill this out, then you've already started thinking about the basic elements. If you have, you should have a, a, a stapled handout. Anybody not get one of those? Do we have any extras if you need it? Everybody have that? Has anybody got an extra copy for me? I forgot to hold on one for myself. The way this policy uh, reads, I've tried to keep it as simple as possible. I have looked at all the models online. Uh, many of them have denominational features. Many of them, I think, are way too complicated. Uh, and so I've tried to strip it down to the, the core of what I think we need to accomplish and go from there. So paragraph one is a statement of the purpose of why you would have a facility use policy. You need to make clear it's not so you can be bigoted. Uh, it's not so that you can be homophobic. The purpose is so that you can be consistent in teaching God's Word. Not just in word, but in deed. And that's what uh, that paragraph tries to say, and it adds some scriptures towards the end that we talked about earlier. 2 Corinthians 6, 3 and verse 14, and Ephesians 5, 11 and 1 Corinthians 5, 22. Once you've stated the purpose of the policy... Then you need to set out the core of the policy, which is paragraph two, and that is that your policy is to only use this building or all the church property for religious purposes, for ministry purposes. And I think a general good rule when you're drafting a policy is to give concrete examples of what you mean. And so that next sentence in that paragraph says the kinds of things that we will allow include, and then it names the five elements of, of worship, uh, of, you know, and then fellowship and teaching and weddings and funerals and benevolence and outreach and education, and any other activity that has a bona fide religious purpose and is approved by our eldership. So if you, uh, as an eldership, are trying to uh, control the use of your building, you need to make sure it fits into one of these, uh, pot, these, these pots. If you can't pigeonhole it, then you need to either revise your policy or stay away from it. If you can't ca fairly characterize it as one of those things. And I've tried to be as um, broad as I could, but I still think you need to um, be clear in your thinking about what you're going to allow and what you don't. So, do you allow a... Um, celebration of, uh, you know, an older couple uh, being married for 50 years in your fellowship hall with some cake afterwards. Well, look in that list, and I think you can fairly characterize that as church fellowship, don't you? Uh, or a marriage-related ceremony, because that would include rehearsals and anniversary celebrations and the weddings and, and uh, that sort of thing. So receptions afterwards. So you need to be comfortable with those categories and make sure you know what fits in those categories and what wouldn't. Then paragraph number three emphasizes the fact that the elders get to decide what fits those categories and what doesn't. What is consistent with God's word and the beliefs and teachings of the church and what isn't. And this isn't a democracy. This is a divine institution set up by God with elders with the authority to lead this flock. And so we have to defer to their judgment on these things and, and the law will work better for a church that has a strong 
eldership that understands its authority and that the, elder, the members all respect it. Why? Because if it's a democracy, the judge will just say, okay, let's, let's have a vote. If it's an eldership church that's, that's run by an eldership, then the judge will say, I have to defer to them because they have a centralized authority for making those decisions, and so I can't get involved. And so you need to teach and practice consistently the authority of elders to make uh, these kind of spiritual decisions on behalf of the congregation. Not just spiritual decisions, but look at the middle of that paragraph. Uh, it says, decisions, the second to last sentence, the eldership or its designee also has the discretion to review, re- refuse or revoke permission for practical reasons unrelated to the violation of biblical precepts and principles. And this is the idea of, you know, there being doctrinal matters and then there being matters of expediency. And when it comes to matters of expediency, the elders still have to have the authority to make the decision on behalf of the flock. And so they choose what time we meet and, and how often we meet and, and whether we have Bible classes, Sunday school classes, and whatnot. And those are not doctrinally mandated things, except to meet on the first day of the week, but not particular times, or whether to meet twice or just once. But once they've made that decision, they have the authority to make the decision, and they should be able to be the final say on that. And legally, that should keep the judges out of the uh, decision-making process. Now... Paragraph number four is uh, one that sets out general guidelines. So I think this, uh, yeah, so this one says do not charge rent or fees, but it's actually reversed. So paragraph four or five, um, one of them needs to cover giving concrete examples of things that you do not allow. So you had categories of things that you do allow and the full discretion and authority of the elders to decide what meets those qualifications. And then you have a list of things you do not allow. And again, the elders make the final decision on whether you meet those qualifications to, to be disallowed. So what kind of concrete examples? The form that I gave you is where you would then customize this policy. Question number 11, which of the following do you wish to formally or expressly prohibit? And you check them. And if you do check them, then include that language. If you do not want to expressly prohibit that in your congregation, then you don't check it. Um, uh, and so that's, if you have other things that you specifically do not want happening in this church building, then add it. But that one is where you would make it very clear to anybody that reads it what you do not allow. Now, when it comes to same-sex marriage, look at paragraph... Um, Paragraph J. And this is uh, pretty complicated because the church that I was working on with this um, had some very specific guidelines they'd followed for a long time. You may want to make it much simpler. But you've got to decide ahead of time, do you want to let anybody who comes into the doors and says, can we get married here, get married as long as they're, not, as long as they're an opposite-sex couple? That could be one approach. Or... Do you want to let them get married here, no matter who they are, as long as they'll go through premarital counseling with one of your elders or preacher? That'd be another approach. Might be good, good evangelistic tool. Or do you want to minimize your risk a little bit of somebody bringing some weird requests uh, by saying um, you can get married here um, if you'll go through premarital counseling with us and. Uh, a member of the Church of Christ, a preacher or an elder in the Church of Christ, will be doing the marriage ceremony. You can't bring in some 
you know, unknown minister, because it may end up being a woman or something that, that wants to conduct the service for them. Uh, and then you can go another level and say, no, you've got to get premarital counseling with us, and the person who conducts the wedding has to be a member of the church, and you, well, at least one of you, needs to be a member of the church. That may cut down on the request for same-sex weddings and that sort of thing if you could say, well, I'm sorry, we only... You don't have to say, we don't, we don't want to let you use this facility because you're a same-sex couple. And say, sorry, we only allow members of the church to use this facility. But then the question is, who's a member of the church? Do you mean the Church of the Christ as a whole? Anybody from any congregation? Or do you want to further restrict it to members of this congregation? And that's what this church chose to do. So you see that whole spectrum of decisions you've got to make? And each one is decreasing the legal risks, but they're also cutting off potential opportunities to evangelize and outreach. So you've got to make that call as an eldership. And this church said, we're going to make the call and say, at least one of the party, either the bride or the groom, has to be a member of this church or formerly a member of this church in good standing, just moved away, or they're related to somebody that was a member of this church or formerly a member of this church. So it's kind of a complicated Boolean logic thing, you know, where you've got to do X and or Y or Y. You know, so it was a little complicated, so that's why it's written the way it's written. And so uh, they have the requirement that at least one party of the member, party to the marriage, must be a member in good standing at a faithful congregation somewhere. And... Either the bride and groom have to be members, one of them had to be a member or is a member of this congregation, or they're related to somebody that was or is a member of this congregation. So that's how they set it up. Then they added the requirement that we talked about earlier of making, requiring whoever's going to officiate the wedding to be a member of the church. And uh, depending on your state law, um, that would allow a minister, uh, a regular minister or preacher, uh, as well as an elder, um, to do that. All wedding ceremonies, here's number four. This is the one that would keep it limited to um, divinely authorized marriages. All wedding ceremonies must be, be between a scripturally qualified man and woman, and any second marriage ceremony must have scriptural grounds consistent with Matthew 19.9. So that way, you're not discriminating against same-sex couples. You are saying to both homosexual and heterosexual couples, you will only allow them to get married if they have the biblical authorization to get married. And if they're going after a second marriage without scriptural grounds for the first one, they're not authorized. And if they're not one man and one woman, they're not authorized. That's just the way it is. Um, now the last point is it makes it clear that we're talking about any aspect of celebrating an, a, an unauthorized marriage. Um, Facilities will not be used to host the wedding, the rehearsal, the reception, the celebration, or similar gathering for a same-sex couple or for any persons ineligible to marry due to a prior unscriptural divorce or other biblical reason. So that's the primary, most difficult, most important language to make clear given the current um, risks of, of being asked to perform a wedding that would violate the teachings of the church. Now, uh, paragraph 6 says that you want to um, request if it's going to be some big event and, or you don't have sufficient uh, general liability insurance for the church to cover these kind of events that they take out a, a, a policy to cover that event 
or uh, request they, in writing, agree to identify you. Um, if anybody was to get hurt and try to follow suit against the church, they would indemnify you for that. Um, and we've got some language at the end of this uh, agreement to uh, do that, do just that. And in paragraph 7, is it requires them to complete an application and sign an agreement, which includes a general waiver. And that's what you've got. I won't go through it all, but this is a model application front and back and a model agreement with a general release and identification language, which is actually two and a half pages. But notice on the agreement, we went overboard at the request of an eldership and had them initial every sentence so they can't say they didn't read it because not only did they sign it at the end, they signed every line of it with their initials. Uh, so it's sort of like a, a, a rental policy or something that you really want to, you know, mortgage uh, uh, sell, contract on a sale of a house or something important. Might be unnecessary to go through all that, but since it does go over more than one page, it's probably a good idea to initial at least each page if you, when you design yours. Um, and and uh, just be consistent in how you enforce that. So that's uh, essentially what I... Um, had in terms of a facility use policy, this policy application and agreement language will be posted on John Cackleman's website. He's an assistant attorney general for the state of Alabama down in Montgomery and a lawyer and a member of the church at Delrada. And he has created a website called ChristianLegalForum.org. And I've been submitting a few uh, articles and things to him, and he's asked if I would submit this to him, so I'll do that next week. So you can pull that down in electronic form and then change it as you need to. Okay? And then I've also left Mark a copy of it on uh, his computer. So from there, let's uh, quickly move through uh, the bylaws question. What you include in bylaws. Uh, I've already posted some model language for bylaws on John's website. Again, that's christianlegalforum.org. Um, but this is the basic things you want to make sure you cover because these are the things that are going to have legal implications. You've got to define marriage now. It's not enough to say, as Faulkner's policy said, because we helped draft it, um, you know, uh, that, that you have to be, um, how do we put it? Uh, you know, that we don't allow the students or the faculty to um, have uh, any kind of sexual relations outside of marriage. It's no longer enough to say that because now you can have a same-sex marriage. You've got to define that as biblical marriage between a man and a woman. And so you've got to make clear when you talk about marriage what you mean. You don't mean the world's definition. You mean God's definition. You've got to affirm what you mean by a man and a woman now. You've got to define what you mean by a man and a woman now. It's crazy. Uh, but um, there is no assumptions uh, about that now. And people that think that even though they're born a man, if they have uh, radical surgery performed, uh, they're now women. And uh, I don't believe God made them a woman. I believe God made you whatever your biological sex is. And that's your gender. And that's how we decide whether you're qualified as a man to uh, be a minister in the pulpit or an elder or uh, whatnot. And so you've got to define those kind of things. Unbelievable that we have to do that in this day and age. You've got to give concrete examples of what you mean by sexual sin, as we talked about already, uh, so that you're, you don't single out one uh, opposed to another, uh, but that you are clear about, uh, about it. 
You've got to explain that the Bible is your final authority. We don't have any creeds. We don't have any world headquarters telling us what, what's what. Uh, we're turning to the Bible. But at the same time, you've got to explain the role of your eldership in overseeing the local congregation and interpreting the Bible, at least for purposes of carrying out their duties and deciding how to use this building and what's going to be allowed in this building and not what's not. And so those are the five big subject areas that your bylaws need to address. And again, Melvin Ote, uh, John Kackelman, um, John Macy, and I are all Christian lawyers that have taken a stab at drafting that language, and there are several samples. Um, but I encourage them to post a lot of different versions so that we don't have one version out there in the church looking like some kind of creed. Uh, just cite book, chapter, and verse for anything that you, that you assert. Uh, and I believe, um, I believe that'll satisfy what, what we need to do. So, uh, three more questions, four more questions about youth ministry. And these I won't spend a lot of time on because I think um, the last couple of sessions did a good job of covering some of this. Do you do a formal background check on all your staff and volunteers? Um, my position is you don't, if they're going to be, uh, whether they're paid or unpaid, if they're going to be working with young people, um, without the oversight of the elders, uh, so off corporate church property or be, uh, beyond or outside regular church worship times, um, especially overnight, then paid or unpaid, they need a background check. Uh, now, if you want to go overboard and have a background check done on all your school, Sunday school teachers, that's fine. But in my opinion, um, it's more important that you just monitor Sunday school and have uh, an elder or somebody designated to walk the halls, make sure you've got the windows and the doors like, like uh, we, we mentioned earlier, and they can check on things. Not a lot's going to happen during Sunday school, during worship service, if you are supervising it. It's when you're un not supervising them. And they've built a rapport and relationship with those kids, and the kids trust them. And they all get in the van to go get ice cream or spend the night at church camp in a cabin together. That's when things can go awry. All right. Question number seven is, do you have a written safe church policy? And we've talked a lot about what a safe church policy looks like. Uh, and, and I would recommend to you that you um, develop that. And a lot of the suggestions that were given this afternoon are good ones. The two-adult rule, the six-month waiting rule, the windows and the doors rules, all those are what we call best practices. It's sort of like medical malpractice. Your goal is not to be perfect and, and prevent any possible thing ever happening. Your goal is to make sure you're doing what everybody else in town's doing, what everybody else in this community does. And so the problem is, as, as Joe and others have pointed out, denominations have entire headquarters with entire armies of lawyers who are drafting this stuff and pushing it down. And so they're much more sophisticated. But the jury's not going to care, especially if they go to the Baptist church. They know what the best practices should be. And when they see your little church that didn't follow any of the basic rules that everybody else is following, they're going to see that was negligent. So you've got to stay up with the Joneses, so to speak, because a jury's going to judge you by the standard of what the rest of the community's been doing. And so the Catholics, when they first started facing all the sex abuse charges, up their game. Then the Protestant churches responded. And now all the local autonomous churches like ours have got to follow suit because the standards have changed. Because negligence is a relative term, just like medical malpractice is a relative term. Doctors in Jasper, Alabama, don't have to do everything that doctors in New York do. 
Uh, they hopefully are, but they don't have to because they have different standards. It's what the doctors have the ability to do in this area. Now, um, do you use release and waivers? And I'll give you a few guidelines on those in just a second. And do you, use, do you pay church employees for their volunteer work? So let me cover those really quick. Screening, I think I've covered all that. Um, Six-month rule, do the background check, do, check your references. When you hire a youth minister... Check your references. When you hire a minister, check your references. It always really disturbs me when I hear a preacher that's removed from his position because he was you know, having an affair with some woman in the congregation that he was counseling, married, giving marriage counseling to, and then he gets hired down the street by another church. And when I asked the elders, why would they, you know, how'd they, decide, how'd they reach that decision? Oh, they didn't check any references. That's insane. Okay? You have full power and authority to call up previous employers and their references, whether they list them or not, people that should know uh, because of their past employment, and ask for clear, truthful information. It's harder for them to pick up the phone and call you to warn you. Legally, that's a little problematic. But it's no problem you picking up the phone and asking because you're about to hire them. So since that's legally more defensible, that's a duty on your part to do it more affirmatively. Um, and uh, safe church policy. We talked about most of these things, uh, but the idea is that, that you're trying to look for your, at your specific facilities and your specific ministries to figure out what your specific uh, safety concerns should be and how you can um, remedy that or, or minimize the risks. So let me say a few things about release and waiver. In most states, a parent cannot release the church from liability on behalf of the child. So once the child grows up, turns 18, they could sue you. So if they were molested in you know, some Sunday school class and come back 12 years, 15 years later to uh, sue you, guess what? They can't. Okay? Statute of limitations for certain heinous crimes is, is, is designed to toll until they um, have that kind of opportunity. So a release signed by the parent saying you'll hold them harmless and won't sue us over anything is still not going to prevent that. So you still can't rely on that to uh, protect you. Uh, and You've got to take every effort you can to protect those children because there's liability that you cannot insure away or release away, wave away. All right. Number two, you can have the student sign as well. And I encourage that on our releases uh, with our church. I encourage both the parent and the student sign. But you've got to understand the signature of a minor is not worth anything legally. What it does, though, is it puts them on notice that they have a responsibility, too, to follow the guidelines. And so you're telling little Johnny, this isn't a game, this is for real, we're going hiking, and you will not separate from the group, you know, because little Johnny will fall off a cliff. And, and, the, and the whole camp... The whole church is going to be liable for that. Um, and so just getting his John Hancock on there may help a little bit um, in, in educating him and the parents uh, in that regard. When I say a general release, what we're talking about is a very specific, ideally, not just one that says no matter what we do, when we do it, two years from now, uh, but specific to each event. So every time you engage in a dangerous activity, you want to take them on a hiking trip, you want to take them on a rafting trip, you want to take them on anything that's got any kind of danger to it, I would, in addition to an annual waiver to participate in youth activities, generally, I would have a specific event a waiver signed. And you get the parents to sign, 
you, you make sure you get some emergency contact information and a medical consent so they can get medical treatment. Um, and you basically make sure that they understand to hold you harmless and they're assuming all the risks uh, and, and liability. You won't have any liability. And in fact, if anybody else sues you, that they will indemnify you for what their kids did. So it's a, it's a pretty comprehensive document that you do on an event-by-event -event basis and then at least once a year generally. Now, specific suggestions. Make sure the release form clearly identifies what is being released, the specific activities and any associated risks. Collect all the forms at the same time. Attempt to have both the kids and the parents sign it. And uh, if you can, have the signatures witnessed. Uh, but generally that's pretty hard to do. Leave the copies of all the forms of the at the church for record keeping. If you're traveling in multiple vehicles, have a complete set of all the forms, especially the medical consent forms, in each vehicle, glove compartment. So if there is a major accident, the ER and whatnot can immediately start getting, giving them treatment. And then HIPAA protects all medical information uh, under federal law, so you need to keep this information secure. This is not something that should just be laying out in the open. Uh, I generally recommend it be kept under a two-key rule. So you basically keep it in a filing cabinet that can be locked, or a closet that can be locked in a room that's locked, or a desk drawer that can be locked in a room that is locked. Um, so what about church employees volunteering? This is a wage and hour issue, it's just a hypothetical that I wanted to make you aware of. If you have an employee of the church, like a, book, like a church secretary or the bookkeeper, uh, and they want to volunteer and do church work above and beyond their regular duties, you have to pay them if what they're doing is in the same scope of what they normally do as a bookkeeper or as a church secretary. She can't say, you know, pay me from 8 to 5 to be your church secretary and I'll stay after for a couple hours and finish up that paperwork for the church because I'm a member here and I just want to do that and you don't have to pay me. She can't. She can't. You can't suffer or permit her to do that even if she wants to. You owe her that money under the law. So you've got to pay her. Uh, it, now, if she's doing something that's completely unrelated to her job as an employee of this congregation, that's true volunteer work. And I think that's a point of confusion. And so, you know, a bookkeeper can volunteer to be the cook at a church retreat, but they can't volunteer to keep the accounts for that church camp. In addition to her regular paying job of keeping the church's books, keep that church camp's books for free as her sort of contribution uh, if they are the same entity. Now, uh, moving on, uh, copyright laws are the last three questions. Do you have a CCLI license? How many of y'all have one of those? How many people don't know what that is? Anybody? All right, CCLI is a number that you get from an organization at ccli.org or .com, and that organization has got an agreement with everybody that's ever written a religious song basically. And basically it authorizes you for $100, $200 a year, depending on how big your congregation is, to use, perform, publish on an overhead or in a little uh, Devo songbook um, the words and or music, either one uh, or both, uh, of all these religious songs. And it's a really important thing to do because otherwise you're violating copyright to the tune of $15,000 per song. And somebody can make a killing off your church if they catch you, you know, with an unlicensed 
Devo songbook in every pew, uh, which I've seen in many churches for a long time. I think now we're finally getting the message, spend your $100, $200 a year, and put your CCLI license number on there. That said, um, let me, I'll come to a few other suggestions about that in a second. Question number 11, did you seek legal advice before publishing sermons that contain copyrighted material worship services on the Internet? This is a big issue. You've got to be careful when you publish those church bulletins on the web like, like Midway does to make sure the church bulletins don't contain any copyrighted material. I've had two, three congregations contact me because of a woman in Atlanta who owns the particular poem called The Dash. It's about three or four lines. It's about the dash between the date you're born and the date you die. Uh, and a lot of people will put it in their bulletins. Well, she does a web crawl. 24 hours, 7 days a week, looking for people that accidentally published her poem without her permission. And then she sues them and routinely picks up $1,000 or more. And so anybody can do that that has copyrighted material that you put on the web without their permission because you're publishing it without authorization. So you've got to get smarter about that. When we're now publishing entire sermons with entire PowerPoints which have images they stole straight out of Google and didn't have any license to use. And there is a limited exception for using uh, copyrighted material in worship but not in then posting that worship or that sermon on the internet. You with me? So you can use an image in a sermon on a PowerPoint during worship all you want and nobody can sue you. But you can't publish it then. Burn it onto a CD and sell it for more than $4 or put it on the internet in any shape or form. Is that simple enough? And it's very complicated, but we're violating it like crazy. And by the grace of God, we're just not getting sued over it right now. But uh, I don't, don't be surprised if you get a strange letter in the mail and don't assume it's just a joke. It's for real. Now, do you have a written agreement with your minister regarding ownership of creative works? A lot of ministers are very creative and they do a lot of additional, you know, put together a lot of additional materials and whatnot. If they're using your machines and doing it on your time, if, you have, uh, if they have set office hours, um, then you, there's a good argument that you both own it. But to avoid any confusions, you ought to agree on the front end. Now, I don't care who owns it. I just don't like to see uh, good men soured by falling out with the eldership over what, who owns something that they thought they owned the elders thought they owned. So you ought to decide that on the front end. That look, every article, every publication, every you know DVD, anything you put together, um, you own or uh, we own or whatever, or we co-own it, uh, however you want to handle that. But you need to think through it. These are some websites that you can get permission to use the various things that are listed there, but ccli.com is the main one that you need. Um, and so that's, that's basically... Uh, what I had prepared for you, and I wanted to leave just a few minutes to ask questions or talk about any topics that concerns you. Anything specifically that I know we went over time today, but I just wanted to make sure you had a chance to ask any questions. If not, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. I appreciate the elders and the works that you do and uh, encourage you uh, to feel free to reach me, reach me personally if you have a question because I try to serve... Um, elderships in, in particular to the best of my ability. Thank you. Matt, we appreciate that very much. Appreciate 
you and, and coming and being here with us at Midway for this. Look forward to uh, being able to do this again, hopefully um, this next year. Uh, any, I'd like to at this time offer any of our visiting congregations, if they have anything going on, they'd like to...